0: In this episode, I feature Eto Eto'ototikbe. He recovers buried narratives and gives form to the unseen. He is a polymedia artist whose interdisciplinary practice includes sculpture, performance, installation, and public art. His experimental drawings form the basis for much of his studio practice. He creates linear patterns, geometric abstractions, and reinterpretations of the structural elements used in his large-scale public artworks. The process of remixing blueprints expands the potential of the visual language for each project and conjoins them. Eto has participated in several solo and group exhibitions and has received several awards, grants, and fellowships. In 2020, he established EO Studio in Brooklyn a formal entity to manage various public art commissions and facilitate an expanding network of collaborators, artists, designers, research and cultural workers. EO Studio received a Creative Capital Grant in 2023. Eto is an assistant professor of sculpture in the art department at Brooklyn College. He received a B.S. in Mechanical Engineering from MIT, an M.S. in Product Design from Stanford University, and an M.F.A. in Creative Practice from the University of Plymouth. In addition, he is a Smithsonian Artist Research Fellow at the Museum of African Art. Visit cerebralwomen.com for his expanded bio and enjoy this episode featuring Eto Tatekbe. Eto, welcome to my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I am delighted to feature you.
1: Thanks Phyllis, thanks for having me.
0: Yes, your work is so interesting. I can't wait to dive in. So let's start with when you discover your creativity, your artistic passion.
1: I was pretty young. I was always taking things apart with my brother, making inventions out of old record players and phonographs and playing in the dirt, playing in the leaves. And then in high school, a lot of folks knew me as an artist I was drawing and painting a lot. But I, you know, I loved science and math. I absolutely loved it. And physics, forget about it, was probably my favorite subject. From there, I went to engineering school just because I thought it was another place to play, not necessarily thinking that I was going to end up being. An engineer to be honest. That's interesting,
0: wow. So let's explain to everybody, how would you define your practice?
1: Polymedia, interdisciplinary. So I work across the disciplines of sculpture, performance and installation, and more recently mixed reality as well. And uh, polymedia in the sense that I'm not committed to using one particular medium as a storytelling element. I like to explore lots of different materials and see how they lend themselves as a layer to the story or the statement I'm making.
0: what are the materials that you use in your work?
1: Right now, I'm um, treating steel like paper, making this kind of big stacked origami kind of uh, installation with sheets of 16 gauge steel that I'm cutting and folding. And it's reminding me of like building card houses when I was young. And fluid-wise, like painting-wise, um, I, I've been introduced by a, a friend to uh, these solvent-based dyes, which, which are really interesting because you can use them to paint on metal, and they have a really interesting luminous quality. They're kind of semi-transparent, so you could see the surface and, and the sheen or the shimmer of the metal through these dyes. But what happens is after they dry, they're dry to touch, but then since they're solvent-based, if you drop some more dye on top of what you've painted or what you've applied to, um, it reactivates that area, unlike acrylic where if you let acrylic paints dry, you don't they, you don't really reactivate when you paint on top of them again. Or even oils for that nature, unless you maybe thin them out with a, with a thinner oil. So this is interesting because, you know, you could layer up images in a really interesting way uh, layers of paint in an interesting way and still see the surface qualities of of the base material you know and i hesitate to say that what i'm doing is painting and i definitely don't consider myself a painter right now i think of it as drawing uh, kind of an experimental approach to drawing
0: and you also work with really heavy materials right stone in your public works and your installations
1: Yeah, I've been introduced to um, some really amazing stone fabricators in, in Madison, Wisconsin. So I've worked with this company, Quora Stone Company. Um, and I was introduced to them through uh, Haller and Youne Architecture, who I worked with on the memorial to enslaved laborers at UVA in Charlottesville, Virginia. Huara Stone Company did a lot of the stone carving for that project. And after visiting their studio and seeing how excited they got about stone, I got really excited about working with stone and finding ways to work with them. And I just love that it's the natural material, of course, um, and the stone could have kind of its own story or lend itself to your own story based on where it's from or the qualities of the stone if it has like quartz in it or some kind of reflective specks of material or the veining of the stone might be an indication of how it was formed and all those things are, are really beautiful to experiment with it's been a real treat to kind of have access to those materials in my studio more recently
0: it's fascinating what aspect of your practice do you enjoy the most
1: Mm. <laughs> um, I really love making things. I absolutely love creating things and working with my hands and I love tools. In in my studio, we have tools on top of tools on top of other tools. And sometimes I make tools to make things or make fixtures to hold things that I'm making. So that whole process of engineering and artwork is something that I really enjoy. i thinking through the challenges and, and opportunities. Even to create a simple cut in a piece of material, I might have to kind of create a lot more complex things to allow myself to do that. So I I could get lost in that stuff sometimes. For me it's really fun, the the challenges and, and the problem solving.
0: And between your drawings and your installations, working with these heavy materials, are there concepts that connect all the work?
1: Yeah, right now, for the past, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four years, I've been kind of using this blanket statement about alien shrapnel. I think about what I'm doing as creating alien shrapnel. And that kind of came about from, you know, reading a lot of Afrofuturism, Kojo Eshun, for example, Octavia Butler, Samuel Delaney, and thinking about like, you know, as an artist, Fred Moten, of course, reading some Fred Moten and thinking about my perspective on Afrofuturism. And, you know my background in engineering and things like that, and thinking about how, how would one reverse engineer some of these things I've read about, some of these places or, or vessels or spaceships or space stations or uh, things like that, or what if we are encountered with a fragment of one of those things, um, whether it's you know directly tied to something that was in one of these texts or something that I'm just kind of improvising as, as I'm going along. What does that tell us about this other culture, this other civilization? What does it tell us about ourselves? So it's like a kind of speculative way to think about the present and also about the
0: future. So how do you keep learning?
1: Oh, man, uh, so many ways. I, I think I'm constantly engaged in learning. I think first and foremost, um, I've always been curious. And now I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and they are extremely curious and they keep me on my toes. So I'm constantly thinking about their experience in the world. And I'm always kind of invited to experience things that I, you know, of course, experienced growing up or just living life with them and, and, and through their eyes and through their perspective so it's it's really fun my wife is a brilliant historian. Um, So she's basically light years smarter than me. (laughs) So I just like to kind of glean off of the books that she leaves around the house um, and kind of check that stuff out and see what I can learn from that. And of course, you know, listening to her unpack different ideas that she's working with is always, you know, a treasure for me. And I'm a professor, so I'm immersed in an environment where everything is a potential learning opportunity. I learn from my students. I learn from my colleagues. I learn from the staff at Brooklyn College where I teach. There's always this exchange, you know, that's happening around me. And for my own practice in general, I do tons of research. I do tons of reading, some writing. Um, and what really helps too is, especially with the public or performance work, is when I'm invited to a new space and I'm, I can physically go to a new location, and um, you know, meet new folks and explore somewhere new and learn about the history of, of that place. You know, why does this look like that? Why does this feel like that? And, you know, also, what is the history of Black people here? You know, is something that I'm always wondering um, when I visit places if there is one. Right. So all those things keep me learning, keep me curious, keep me informed.
0: It's wonderful. Do you feel black art can be defined?
1: I hope to hell not. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's it's such a seductive and elusive thing, you know, it's always shifting, but it, it has weight to it. Right. So I think we can talk about who makes so-called Black art or who consumes it and all the complexities around that. I think we can talk about how art created by Black people has been historicized or criticized, but that's not necessarily defining Black art, you know, that's kind of a different kind of conversation that speaks to more of the social, economic or cultural landscape that we're trying to characterize. Mm
0: -hmm. So with your work, particularly the drawings, I don't know if this question applies to the public works. When do you know work is finished?
1: Man, uh, that's tricky. When do I know a work is finished? Sometimes I don't really know, but I, I kind of feel it out. I When I take a step back and I feel a little bit relieved <laughs> by what I'm looking at, I know it's finished. Sometimes it's it's just really practical in the sense that I might take a few different photographs of an object or I might take photographs, you know, inside my studio and also outside in natural light and see what that looks like and see if there's a sort of a clarity to what I'm communicating, that some of the areas aren't kind of ambiguous or, or, or muddied up that, you know, I'm looking for visual discontinuities, things that would break up kind of an experience or a vibe that I'm getting from the work. So I'm I'm kind of scanning for those things. And that's how I know whether something is finished or not. You know, sometimes I have the opportunity to share works that are in progress or works that I think are finished with folks like Amanda Kerdahi, my studio manager. She's been tremendously helpful in uh, my practice in the last uh, two years or so. So having a sounding board like that, um, you know, so I'll send her, you know, a whole folder of digital photos of uh, recent work or work in progress and, kind of will have an opportunity to talk about it with respects to where I started in, in the process or in relation to other bodies of work that I've created.
0: And do you think about your audience when you're creating the work?
1: It depends on what I'm creating, whether I think about my audience or not. In my independent studio practice, my focus is much more internal and inwards. So I'm I'm having a conversation with myself. I'm literally talking to myself out loud in my studio while I'm making things. And I'm thinking a lot less about, you know, uh, other people. But with public projects or performance works, there's a lot of consideration that's focused on the audience and what their experience might be. I, you know, I can't fully program what the experience will be, or I can't fully determine what someone will take away from a public work or performance work. But I think there are things I can do to consider how they might view the work, or how it will sound, or you know, there's some very formal concerns about the, the space and the logistics and things. Like that that I can take into account that are all part of the work. So in, in that sense, there's kind of two different approaches.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did your practice change
1: over the years? I think starting around 2018, not really actually earlier than that. So it's 2014-ish, I had a few years where I had some temporary public art projects and those were really fun, but those felt still a little bit more like extensions or three-dimensional representations of my drawings, really. And they were temporary, so they were up for like six months or so. And um, that was interesting. Then starting on in 2018, I started working on my own permanent sculpture commissions and 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 also around that same time, I was invited to join the design team for the Memorial to enslaved Laborers. So that was a huge shift in in my practice, being invited to that team and also working on my own design, engaging communities in in a really different way because of the implications of permanence or, you know, perceived permanence of, of the work really brought a new sensibility to what I was doing. And since then, I've pursued a lot of different permanent public sculpture commissions. I have about three others that are in process right now in Philadelphia at University of Pennsylvania, in Alexandria, Virginia, and also in Harlem, New York. So each one is site-specific in a lot of different ways and deals with very particular historical contexts that are specific to those areas. So the practice has grown because the number of people that I've worked with to create these works has expanded, you know, tremendously. So that's been really
0: interesting. Yeah, I bet your team has definitely grown. When do the titles of your work enter your creative process? I should say with your drawings.
1: Yeah, really towards the end. Of course, like when I'm working on a piece, I have some pretty familiar and particular themes that I'm thinking about and throwing around in my head as I'm developing the drawings. But the the titles are the result of me reflecting on, you know, what I've created. The titles might not necessarily be related to the themes I started working with. They're, They're maybe even triggered by memory. Around 2017, 2018, I was a Smithsonian Artist Research Fellow at the National Museum for African Art in Washington, DC. And my proposal was to go there and look at objects in their collection that were from and created by Urobo people. And that is my ethnic and cultural background is Urobo from the southern kind of central area, the Delta region or the Delta state of Nigeria in West Africa. Urobo objects are not widely represented in a lot of collections of historical objects around the country and around the world. So whenever I see them, I'm really kind of intrigued and I want to know more about them. And what I also wanted to do was I wanted to intersect kind of or learn more about these objects, but also learn more about the language that's used to describe these objects, especially using Urobo language. So I was looking at a lot of Urobo terminology and things like that. I got a copy of the Urobo English dictionary, and during that fellowship, really amazing um, art historian Perkins Foss, who traveled to Nigeria, and he's written extensively about Robo art and culture and objects, came to visit me while I was in fellowship at the Smithsonian. That was a real treat because he shared some of his information from his archives with me and, and whatnot. So since then, for some of my drawings, I've been giving them kind of these two names an English name and an Urobo name, and that name would be basically just the counterpart of the English name as a way to kind of diffuse or, or spread Urubo language around more. It's a dying language in, in the sense that it's the use of the language is in sharp decline, even in Nigeria, because folks are choosing to speak more English or pidgin or things of that nature. So, you know, it's not really, for me, it's not really an effort to like reclaim or encourage people to use the language more, really, but more as a way to bring attention to what's happening, perhaps even a way to highlight what might be lost when language use declines or maybe is eventually erased as, as it's happening, not just with Robo language, but lots of languages worldwide, because the language is tied to maybe how we uh, approach or engage one another, um, how we treat each other, belief systems are around. You know how we move through the world and through time.
0: It's yeah, fascinating. So, what are you excited about right now?
1: Spring and summer. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm just really excited about the good weather and just spending more time outside because I'm inspired by nature in my own practice, of course. I love this concept of biophilic design, which has a lot of different tenants, if you will, for lack of a better term, but one of them is finding ways to reflect ideas about nature or natural forms or natural phenomenon in your work. So being outside is just going to give me more of an opportunity to, you know, think about our environment, my role in this ecosystem and how I can revisit those ideas and those concerns in my work more.
0: I hate to ask a negative question, but I will, because this has been such an uplifting, positive, positive talk. But <laughs> What would you say are the most substantial challenges that you have encountered as an artist?
1: Time. <laughs> Time oh. is a tough one. You know, I'm split between family life and teaching and my own studio, and so I'm always negotiating those three. And even, you know, the the parts of being an artist that need to happen outside of your studio, and that's, you know, different for everyone. You know, for me, it's like hanging out with my other artist friends, going to see more art, you know, um, those kinds of things. It's always a challenge to, to balance all of that stuff. That's one of the huge, huge challenges. And, you know, what I've realized, too, is that I'm trying to find ways to build that into the programs I'm working on, especially the ones that require community engagement or have long-term development plans. So thinking about, you know, in the contracts, you know, how can I give myself more time? How do I define what my creative time is versus the, the design kind of finalization stage and, and things like that? Just, so just thinking about how my time is allocated has been a huge thing.
0: I like that answer. So if you weren't a, a visual artist, if you weren't creating, What other career do you think would have given you the same fulfillment? Hmm.
1: Well, you know, I had a previous career as an engineer working in medical devices, developing and commercializing medical devices. That was fun. I got to travel a lot and see all this really amazing technology and meet all these really smart people. There were a lot of limitations to that, though. Lots of paperwork, lots of bureaucracy that, you know, I didn't enjoy at all. Not a lot of freedom for expression either. So I think if, if, you know, if I wasn't creating art, I would maybe work in a record store. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Love
1: that. (laughs) And I love music. I'm probably like 90% music, my body, you know, just to be immersed in. You know, digging through crates and and finding new things and the vibrations that come from sound. But, you know, even the record stores are disappearing. So, I don't know.
0: (laughs) So, your studio, really curious to hear about what your studio feels like, what it looks like. And now I know you're definitely listening to music as you're working.
1: Sure. Um, Right now, my studio is a mess. It's a complete and total chaotic kind of haphazard environment Um, because I'm working on a lot of things right now. I've kind of abandoned the idea of, oh, let me clean up my studio between projects. Let me make it nice for work because there's just only time to work, you know? So my studio is in Brooklyn in an area of Brooklyn called Prospect Heights. And um, I've been there for about six or seven, almost eight years now. Wow. It's a kind of just brick and concrete structure. And I, I share it with other designers, jewelry makers and, and artists. But it's a big open workspace where a bunch of people who were just as enthusiastic about tools and, and making things got together and we piled all our tools on top of each other. So we have the ability to make just about anything in my studio, which is, which is really fun. And there's always something interesting going on so, you know, we can learn from each other in, in that way.
0: Is there music playing?
1: Music wise, I used to play. I have a really great PA system in my studio. So the the few times where my work is more quiet, if you will, whereas, you know, where I'm not using a, a machine or a sander or something like that, I'll have some music playing. But. Nowadays really I, I work in silence in, in the sense or I, I work without music playing because I'm constantly having a conversation with the materials I, I'm working with. So there's a lot of dialogue that's happening there. And I'm also just listening to what I'm doing. I'm listening to, you know, myself sand, aluminum plates or, or wood. I'm listening to the sound that's coming off the material as I as I cut it or, or draw on it or spread the this- fluids or these dyes into the substrates. So there's all these kind of little sounds that are happening. I'm listening to the sound that's kind of coming in off the street. The The cat in the corner of our studio, as the cat lurks around in the little corners of, of the studio, I'm listening to that as well. But for me, it's always noisy. Even without music playing, there's so much activity happening with all that going on. But I used to really inhale music when I created work, and I, I listened to a lot of Deep House, and uh, broken beat, electronic, uh, jazz, hip hop, of course. Um, John Beltran was a producer from Detroit that I listened to a lot. And some of his albums, I would just that would be the only thing I would listen to on repeat for like six months at a time, really. And now listening to a lot of stuff from the UK and, and West Africa and Europe, lots of just kind of up of kind of global sounds of Africa, really but coming from different perspectives.
0: I've really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, I've, I've just found your practice fascinating. It's just been a treat to be able to feature you and to, to learn about the work you're doing. This is our last question, and it is, what do you feel is the purpose of art? And as an artist, what is your role? <laughs>
1: I think art can tell us a lot about history about what we might have misunderstood about the past. I think art can tell us a lot about what's happening right now. It's, it's a great way to communicate emotion and diverse perspectives. So my role as an artist is is to support that and to support the art that not only the art that I create, but the the art that, you know, just about anyone else is creating, you know? So I, I really see myself as one being in 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 a larger ecosystem of other artists, other creators, other art consumers, you know, art observers, art critics, you know, everything.
0: I tell you, thank you very much for your time. Like I said, just totally blown away when I saw your work. So I'm I'm very pleased that I was able to to share your voice and your practice with with others. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Phyllis.
0: Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks Podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.